If you have your Bibles, would you open them up to Romans chapter 12? Romans chapter 12 is the text that we're going to be in this morning. While we continue the series, the sermons I've wanted to preach, you know, it's been kind of fun preaching this series because usually I'm in a study of a book, sometimes for many, many weeks, and so I really have valued the freedom to be able to go to passages that I love, passages that have meant a lot to me, and to be able to break those apart, exposit them, and bring them to you. And I hope that they've been encouraging as they have been for my own self. So Romans 12 this morning, we're going to be in this passage for a few weeks. And we're going to look at the first part of verse 1 this morning. And I want to continue what we talked about last week. If you remember, last week we looked at Psalm 103 and we saw that we are to sing. Now listen, this is really important. That we are to sing in our souls. We are to sing literally to our souls the lyrics of God's benefits to us. Why? Because it stirs us up to blessing God. What's it mean to bless God? Do you remember from last week? Blessing God means to praise Him, and it means to praise Him with a gratitude that is in our hearts that is accompanied by a strong affection. That's what it means to bless God. In other words, if we're blessing God, but there is no love, there is no affection for God, friends, listen, that's not biblical blessing. And on the other hand, if we're blessing God and there's lots of charisma, there's lots of passion, but there's no truth, that's not biblical blessing either. We want to remember all that God has done for us because it stirs us up to responding to Him in a strong gratitude of praise. This morning, we're going to pick that back up. And we're going to see, not in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, this same dynamic that's at work in our hearts. Not a commitment, not a commitment to God that's motivated by guilt. You ever been in preaching where there's a lot of guilt? Remember I told you, I always remember this by around this time of the year because I used to be involved in a church down in Virginia where the pastor on Super Bowl Sunday would make sure to tell everybody in the church that he expected us back that evening. And that the Super Bowl ought not to eclipse our worship. Well, I obviously agree with that, but I had already made plans. We had a party. We bought the food. All afternoon, I felt terrible, guilty that I wasn't going to be at church. It was the worst Super Bowl experience ever. We don't want to motivate anybody by guilt. We don't want to motivate by fear. We want to motivate... Because the very truth of God's mercy is powerful. What He has done for us. It's the stuff of biblical worship. So here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to try to do a little John Piper. He always gives this introduction to his sermons and tells you clearly what it is you're about to learn and better well do. Okay, this is John Piper. All I'm going to do is tell you what you need to learn. I hope to show you this morning the basis for our motivation towards full commitment to Christ. Full commitment. And then we're going to pick up again in the next sermon what that full commitment looks like, what it must consist of, and then the sermon after that, I hope, Lord willing, we're going to see what the results of full commitment would be in our lives. You know, I wasn't very pleasing 
to my eighth grade soccer coach when he saw me in school on the game day not wearing my soccer shirt. That was a rule. Days of the game, you wear your shirt. He asked me where my shirt was, and I told him honestly, Coach, it's in my locker. He wasn't very happy. Angrily, he looked at me and he said, Ackley, where's your school spirit? And meekly, I said, it's in my locker too. I didn't play very much that game. He was not happy. But this is, in effect, what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 12. Now, let me phrase this. Let me set this up so that you can understand, because then I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Here's what he's doing. He noted, Paul did, there, there was a similar condition in these believers in Rome. They're part of the team. That's why he calls them repeatedly brothers. In the Greek, brothers and sisters. But there was very little fruit in that relationship. Now, you got to know this. There's very little fruit. There wasn't a lot of evidence that their lives had a full commitment to Christ. By the way, this is why Paul wrote the book. You want to know why he wrote Romans? Chapter 1, verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. You see, Paul wanted to strengthen the commitment, the faith of the believers in Rome. So he wrote this unbelievably beautiful letter. Their faith was weak. Evidenced by a lot of divisions. Evidenced by many who weren't loving one another. Many caught up in legalism. Many caught up in liberalism. Friends, this church at Rome had it all. And therefore, they needed a powerful letter to strengthen their commitment. They needed to get their spiritual shirt out of the locker and not only wear it, but live it. Now, let me ask you a question before we begin this morning. Really looking at this text. In all honesty, friends, just be honest. I don't know your hearts. I don't know where your life is right now, but God does. So you might as well be honest as you now deliberate examining yourself before God. Just be honest. Where are you right now? Not last year, not where you hope to be in a month. Where are you right now in your walks with the Lord? Can I ask you even a little more specifically? You're holding back on God. In other words, if you were right now in a full conversation before God, face to face, which one day we all will be if we're in Christ, if you were right now in that conversation, would the very searing, holy, merciful gaze of God reveal pockets in your life that you're keeping to yourself, you're holding back? I think that's a fair question. I ask it of myself. It's a great time, isn't it, to ask that question? It's the very first Sunday of a new year. Are you walking with God in full commitment? Now listen. You're lucky, by the way. You only get 30 minutes of this. I've been in this all week being asked this question. God's not satisfied with anything less than all of who we are. You know that, right? 
And so what I want to bring to you this morning through Romans chapter 12, just simply looking at the first verse, nothing's complicated that I'm going to teach you this morning, but I think it's going to be information. I think it's going to be powerful sermonizing material from the word of God because it's going to rivet you. It's going to attack you right before God, and it's going to make you open yourself up and ask that question. Am I fully committed to Christ? How does Paul do it? Let's look in the text. First, he gives an appeal. He says, verse 1, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. What's that mean? Love this word. It's one of my favorite words in all of Scripture. Paraklesis is the word in Greek. It means to come alongside someone in order to give them help. In fact, you know what, friends? In the ancient Greek, This word was a word that a commander of an army would shout just before he would exhort his troops to go into battle. It developed. By the way, words change. You know that, right? Our English words develop. They evolve. They take on nuances of meaning now differently than they did hundreds of years ago. By the time that Paul was writing this, this word in the Greek had developed to come to mean exhorting, admonishing, encouraging, pleading, and dare I say, begging. That's what Paul is saying. I beg you. He's writing as a divinely inspired helper or counselor to the Christians at Rome whose words carried with them the authority of command. He says, I urge you, I implore you, I encourage you, I exhort you, I plead for you to be fully committed in your worship. He's saying that to us. Not one of us escapes this net. Full commitment. You know, let me point out, I think, an incredibly beautiful point about Paul's appeal. Friends, it's an appeal of grace. It's an appeal of grace. Did you know that Paul had the authority as an apostle to command these believers, and he expressed this very authority that he has in Philemon chapter 1. He says there, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, here's that very same word that we're looking at in Romans, I prefer to appeal to you. Instead of a command, he implores That's grace. What do I mean? You know, there was once a mill manager whose workers were not producing. Now, here it is. There was a manager of a mill. His workers weren't producing. And the owner, you're all going to know this name. This is a true story. His name was Charles Schwab. And he asked the manager what was wrong. How come they're not producing? And the manager says, I don't think this is a good answer for your boss. He says, I have no idea. He says, I've coaxed the men, I've pushed them, I've sworn and cussed at them, I've threatened them with being fired. Sir, nothing works. They just won't produce. Schwab asked him, how many heats did your shift make today? Manager said, six. Without another word, Schwab took a piece of chalk and he wrote a big number six on the floor. And then he walked away. 
And when the night shift came in, they saw the six and they asked what it meant. And someone said the big boss was here today. And he asked how many heats the day shift made. And we told him six and he chalked it on the floor. The next morning, Schwab walked through the mill again. You see, the night shift rubbed out the number six. And they replaced it with an even bigger seven. And when the day shift reported the next day, they saw the seven, the night shift they got comp- they got competitive. And they all of a sudden picked up their, their efforts. They pitched in furiously. And before they had left that evening, they rubbed out the seven and replaced it with a ten. Friends, in one 24-hour period, Schwab increased production 66%. You see, harsh motivation, whether you're a pastor, an elder, a deacon, or a parent. Seldom, if ever, produces change. But there is an appeal. There is an imploring. There is a begging that Paul gives. He says, I appeal to you. Then he gives the context. And number two, he says the word, therefore. And I love this word. You might be thinking, oh my goodness, what could he possibly tell us about the word, therefore? Just get to the good part. Friends, you're at the good part. Paul's passionate. He's a caring pastor. You want to measure the heart of a pastor? You're right. I'm going to tell you, I think, how you can biblically measure the heart of any pastor you ever sit under. Here it is. Don't look at just how approachable he is. Don't look at how kind he is. Here's how you measure the heart of a pastor. Look how passionate he is about moving his flock to a greater depth of commitment to Christ. Listen, By the power of the word of God. That's how you know if you're sitting under a shepherd that is anointed by God by his word. It's precisely what Paul is doing in chapter 12. But I got to tell you, chapter divisions, they are distracting. Everybody look at your Bible. You should have a chapter division. Or in verse 1 of chapter 12, they can cause us to lose The context, lose our focus to what the writer is saying. Now let me tell you something. Paul's not beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, a brand new thought. He's building on the foundation of all that he's just written in the first 11 chapters. I know that's boring. If you want to be a Bible student, you got to know every time you see the word therefore, you've got to stop, put it in reverse, go back and make sure you know what was already there. Look in your rear view mirror. That's what it's for. Every time you see therefore, look in that rear view mirror. Have you ever jumped into a, the middle of a conversation that two people are having? I've done this. Without knowing what's already been said and you ended up putting your foot in your mouth? This is the danger of looking at chapter 12, verse 1, without knowing what has already been said before, without being familiar with what Paul has been saying. It's like going to a grocery store. Thankfully, I haven't done this one. And seeing a stack of canned corn and reaching for the one right in the middle and pulling it out. Disaster. The word, therefore makes us look carefully at what Paul has been saying in the 11 chapters before. It's doubly important because Romans 12, 1 and 2, don't you all know what this says? This is one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament. 
And sometimes we can miss new depths of insight because it's so familiar to us. Here we go. Therefore, it's powerful. It stops forward progress. It makes a shift and reverse. It's the rear view mirror of scripture that makes us take another look at what we just passed. Therefore, friends, listen, always know this. It expresses a cause and effect. Therefore means that I've written all of this. Here's your cause. And it's meant to produce an effect in your life. It's what I've taught you, Paul says. Now live it out in your lives. Because Paul knew something that behavioral cognitive psychology is just starting to really learn. What we believe about God determines how we're going to live for him. Did you get that? What you believe about God will determine how you live for him. So let me teach you two words. You ready? Everybody's going to say these. You're going to be able to impress any of your friends, but I'm going to teach these to you for a purpose. You ready? Orthopraxy. Everybody say it. And orthodoxy. Ortho means right. You go to an orthopedic surgeon like my son Matthew seems to do every year. He is making right, setting right his bones that he keeps breaking. Ortho means right or correct. What's praxy mean? It's the word practice or living, right living or right practice. Orthodoxy means right thinking. Now, why did I tell you all that? Well, let me tell you why. Friends, when we separate right thinking from right living, the results are always disastrous. Here's why I'm telling you this. Because there's a lot of people who love to study God's word in our church. They love to come and they love to go to adult Sunday school. They like to hear the sermons. They like to get down deep in the meat. But some of them failed to live it out the rest of the week. And you know what the Bible says? We know this because I spent 36 weeks on this in James. You have a diseased, dead faith. Friends, if you love theology, but you're not living it out, there's something wrong with your faith. But there's the other extreme. And I know a lot of people like this. They don't like theology. Why, why study this stuff? Let's just get out and serve the way we're supposed to. Friends, those people have a hollow, weak faith. It will collapse. Paul's aim, his appeal, his imploring is that right thinking, seeing and understanding the mercies of God, we're coming to it in a minute, would provide the basis for total commitment to worship. So the, the discipline, why are we spending time on one word, the word therefore? Because it needs to become a discipline in our lives so that we stop. We hit the pause button. How many of you this week, how many of you this last week, hit the pause button in your life and reflected on the mercies of God that he's displayed over and over? How many of you this week, before your feet got up and started walking away from your bed, stopped and worshipped and reflected on your salvation in Christ, reflected on 
your family, and how God's calling you to honor and glorify Him through loving them, reflected on your work, how you can bring glory to God with your entire effort. This is what therefore does. It's a missing discipline. It makes us stop. It hits the pause button. It makes us look in that mirror and say, God, you have been incredible. I want to live for you. I want all my life to live for you. Paul gives us a motivation. Did you detect that? It's in Romans 12, verse 1. It's the last part of the first section of that verse. It's that phrase, the mercies of God. You know, there was a group of teens that went to a Billy Graham crusade in San Francisco, and, I, and a number of them went forward to put their trust in Jesus Christ. And on the return bus ride home, Pastor Ray Stedman, who was on that bus, decided to go into an empty seat next to one of the guys and begin talking to them and explaining to him that he's never going to need ever again to be afraid of dying. The teen looked at him and he said to Ray, he says, you know, I've never been afraid of death. But there is one thing that I have been afraid of. I've always been afraid, quote, that I will waste my life. See, Paul is imploring us. He's imploring the Roman believers, don't waste your life. In other words, give to God all of who you are, not some. Give him a full commitment. And here's why, Paul says, I can audaciously call you to this and beg for this from you. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I love that word, brothers. He is so tender. You know what that word means, literally? You ready? You're going to know this. I hope you get it. Let's start using this around the church. It'd be kind of fun. Here's what the word brothers means. It means from one womb. Are you in Christ? Are you a believer? If you are, then the Holy Spirit has given you birth. We're brothers from one source, the Spirit of God. And Paul is imploring brothers and sisters. He's saying, I struggle with you too. I'm on your level. I'm not some apostolic authority that's arrived. I'm with you. And I'm coming alongside of you. My spiritual family to commit with me to fully Follow Christ. And for for 11 chapters, the mercies of God have been centered most in his writings. In fact, if you look in the end of chapter 11 in three verses, the word mercy occurs four times. But what's he mean when he says the mercies of God? Now, friends, listen, drive this one into your mind because you've got to get it down to your heart. This can free your life. You want to know what it means when when Paul says mercies of God? It means the compassion that God feels when we are in distress. That's what it means, the mercies of God. I want to take you deeper, though. You ready? Hang on and listen to this. It's the abundant movement in God's heart that we call pity when he sees our suffering. Now, now listen, the mercies of God doesn't refer to five or six different mercies 
What it refers to, it's a, it's a Hebraism. It means the abundance of mercy. Let me take that further. Hang in there. You ready? Drive this in your mind. Mercy doesn't come and go in God's heart like it does in ours. It's a constant abiding disposition of his heart. Well, what's that mean? Well, Matthew Henry puts it in a fantastic imagery. He says, there is the mercy that is in God and the mercy that comes from God. Now listen, here's what he says. God, mercy in the spring and mercy in the streams. Both are included in this phrase from Paul, the mercies of God. All the streams of Romans, all the streams of mercy that we see in Romans flows from the wellspring of mercy that is in God. Friends, God's rich. He is rich in mercy. He's got plenty of it to give. He's not running low on mercy. Like the water tables of the earth, he's constantly full of mercy. That's the wellspring. And when we suffer, he sends out streams of mercy to help us. Now, Larry Richards explained that the mercies of God, what that phrase means, it's the pitying exclamation torn from his heart. At the sight of another suffering. It's that powerful response that moves God to to move us from a state of sin and misery to salvation in His Son, Jesus. Friends, we will never, listen, we will never ever suffer without God's heart moving to help us. Did you know that? Did you know that God's heart is as full as it can possibly be with mercy and that He sends streams of it out when we suffer physically, when we, stu- when we suffer spiritually? when we suffer emotionally, when we suffer mentally. If we would just learn, that's what Paul's doing, if we would just study and contemplate God's mercy, it will motivate us toward full, committed, worshipful living. You know what some of those mercies are? I'll give you them at a glance from Romans. Here's some of them that were justified. It means declared righteous in his sight. We're dead to sin. Friends, you know what it means to be dead to sin? It means that sin has no more power. It has no more mastery over you. Then now when we sin, it's a choice because we've got the power in us through Christ to defeat it. We're adopted into God's family. You're not alone. You're a co-heir with Christ. You're blessed with all the spiritual blessings in Christ because of our adoption. Romans says we're not under the law anymore. You know what it's like to live under the law? Friends, listen, here's what it's like. You walk in a ravine and you've got one side of the mountain and they're shouting down all the blessings of God if you obey Him perfectly. But on the other side of the mountain in the law, you've got all the cursings of God if you disobey Him, period. Aren't you glad we're not under the law anymore? We're under grace. We're indwelled by the Spirit of God. He lives to make intercession for us. You don't know how to pray? You're too weak to pray? God knows how to pray. The Spirit of God does it for us. We have peace. We have reconciliation with God. We have no more condemnation to Christ. Friends, that shame, that guilt, it has no no strong origin that just sense that you're defective. It's gone. It's done. It is killed in Christ. There is no condemnation in those in Christ. 
We have a promise of future glory. You know, this life is a twinkling of the eye. We can remember there's a glorious eternity for us. We can endure the hardships of this world. We can cast off what this world wants us to love because we know true pleasures are coming. Nothing, Romans says, can separate us from God. These are the mercies of God that Paul has been teaching one after another. That's why Paul was caught up in the end of chapter 11 in this doxological praise. Here's what he says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, and He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How how inscrutable His ways. Here's the doxology. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Remember that question I asked at the beginning? Where are you at right now? Do you have a full, total commitment to God? Friends, be honest. Do you want that full commitment? Then be motivated by the mercies of God. It's the heart of the whole matter. They motivate us to want to live for God's glory. It's what Paul is doing. He's appealing. He's begging us, urging us, exhorting us to worship in our total lives by looking at, contemplating at, loving the mercies of God. How do you apply this? Well, let me ask you this. You ready? Be brave. Receive this right. Here we go. How can we withhold forgiveness from anyone that has hurt us or sinned against us? How can we hold forgiveness when the mercies of God burns an imprint of the cross on our spiritual eyes? How can you not forgive when you see the mercies of God to forgive us? How can we selfishly not serve other people when Jesus picked up that wretched cross and died on it? Why on earth, and I mean that literally, why on earth would we love this world when the mercies of God promise our future glory in heaven? How powerful our prayers can be when we see His mercies at work both through the Spirit of God and through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who pray on our behalves. Friends, why would we carry our own shame when the mercies of God nailed it to the cross? Are you willing... Some of you don't even want to look at me right now, and I understand that. I've been... Right where you are. Are you willing? And I mean willing at the will level, the very center of your heart. Are you willing to give your entire life to God and not holding anything back any longer? He will not be satisfied with anything less. Have you taken the name of Christ but lived in a way as if your life is your own to do what you want. Friends, if that's you, then today is your day to surrender and yield to the one who has bought you by his blood and live for him with your utmost 
effort. We're going to sing this song as we close this morning after communion by Isaac Watts. You remember this song. One of the verses says, we're, we're the whole realm of nature mine, that we're an offering far too small. Get this, look at it on the screen. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We're going to look at total commitment, a commitment to worship for the next couple weeks. And friends, I'm asking that you would pray for me because I'm going to be praying for you that we would not hold back anything from our Savior. We would give Him all of who we are. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, thank You. Father, for Your mercies. God, I just love so much what You taught me this week, that Your heart is full of mercy. You can't cram any more mercy into Your heart. It's absolutely filled with bursting. A pity for those who suffer. And Lord, you send out streams of mercy. You bring about the relief of suffering. Lord, you've done it through Christ. You've relieved our suffering, the separation that we had between ourselves and you through Christ, the cross. Lord, has taken away the sins of those of us who have put our faith in you. Lord, you've given to us your righteousness. You've given to us peace. But Lord, we all suffer. There's some in our church that suffer horribly physically. They suffer with depression. They suffer with discouragement. They're suffering now because they can't find gainful employment. Lord, your heart sends out streams of mercy. And we need to pause and we need to look at what has been in our lives, the evidence of your mercies. God, I pray that the therefore would be a discipline in our lives, that every morning before we get up and go about our day, we would stop. We would pause. We would look in that rear view mirror. And Lord, we would gain the confidence in your mercy to give us strength in our faith for the day. Lord, I pray for that. Lord, be with us, all of us, myself included, chiefly, Father, Lord, help us to commit all of who we are to you, give you everything and no longer holding back. Lord, impel us, implore with us. Lord, I pray that you would come alongside and help us do that. And in Jesus' name, amen.